20 years ago, there was this conception that complex diseases would resolve into discrete subtypes, with each subtype having a molecular driver. And only if we could uncover those molecular drivers, this fruit salad model that you could pick out the blueberries, you could pick out the strawberries based on molecular information. But it turns out that is basically not the case for diseases like diabetes or heart attack. Rather, what it is, is that in any given person, there's a quantitative blend, essentially a smoothie, uh, in terms of risk pathways. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. A brilliant physician scientist, Harvard cardiologist Sae Katharisen, has long been captivated by the genetics of coronary artery disease, a passion that is as much personal as professional. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. I'm David Shaywitz, and today's show is sponsored by RockPoint. RockPoint, innovators in medical education and patient engagement. To learn more, go to www.rockpointe.com. Remember that last E for excellence. So, Lisa. David. So, what's up? Anything new? <laughs> Anything new <laughs> well, in your life? Same old, you same know, old? I uh, decided to, uh, to join the ranks of the unintentionally unemployed. <laughs> no, no, no. We were talking about this because you wrote this really... Um, I wouldn't really say as much raw as just so authentic um, blog post about Thanks. your your decision to go on to your next adventure and yeah. how you were going to prioritize how you feel in your role versus some aspect of it. Yeah, you know, I think I've spent, like many people in my career, focused on what I am. Like, what's my title? What's my, what's my label? And I think um, I really want to make sure my next move is about how I feel when I leave at the end of the day, not my label. Wow. And it's an interesting mental transition, actually, as I'm trying to go through it. We'll see how, we'll see how effective it is. <laughs> well, I mean, I think we all aspire to that, um, to that level of maturity, but... Um, <laughs> so do I. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, really, really, really something. Now, to transition to someone who is not changing jobs, in fact, who just this summer was promoted to a full professor at Harvard Medical School, an exceptional accomplishment, but hardly a surprise to anyone who's been fortunate enough to work with him. I knew Sake from med school and uh, MGH internal residency, and he was actually the same year at MGH as my wife. Everyone, everyone at MGH regarded Sake as a superstar, an obvious choice to become chief resident, which of course he was, um, and to have the, just the sort of rock star academic career that he has had. So as I often say to my kids, Sake, we are delighted but not surprised. Welcome to the show. We're so glad we finally get to, were able to get the scheduling to work and to have you join us. It's a real pleasure to be on the program, David and Lisa. Uh, really uh, privileged to join all right. Well, hopefully you feel that way at the end. Um, <laughs> we, um, you know, we mentioned up front that uh, you were recently promoted to full professor. And what, what struck me so much was the way you, uh, when you shared this on Twitter, there was a really poignant, incredibly poignant tweet that basically said, from India to Pittsburgh Public Elementary School to this, what a thrilling ride in this amazing country, grateful uh, to my family. Um, and do you want to maybe take us to the beginning of that? Um, yeah, you were born, um, as I understand it, in a small town in southern India? Yeah, uh, it has been an amazing ride. Uh, really, I think a ride maybe uniquely possible in this country. You know, I, I was born in 1971 in a small village uh, in India, uh, no running water, uh, no indoor plumbing. Uh, at the age of nine, I, you know, came to this country. See, just to, just to stop you a few minutes before that, but in when you were four, it sounds like, um, I know you have a, um, 
when you were growing up, uh, you grew up in a family with an older brother and a younger sister. And in 75, I think your dad went to the U.S. for his Ph.D., taking your mom and sister, but leaving you and your bro- brother, Senthil, behind with your grandparents for several years. What kind of transition was that like? Oh, that, 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 that was crazy. I actually just reflected back on that because I, I have uh, three children. And what my parents did basically was left uh, the two of us, my brother and I, with my grandparents for about five years. So my dad left in 75. I was four. And I didn't see him or my mother for the next five years. And I think it kind of speaks to, uh, you know, the kind of sacrifices a lot of immigrants make to really try to develop a better a life for their children. And of course, we were cared for by my grandparents. We went to boarding school in India. Uh, but still, being away from my parents for those number of years during that really uh, very formative uh, period um, uh, was challenging. Uh, but in, you know, now I look back, I can see why they made that decision. Wow. And then you said that um, when um, you, uh, you came to the U.S., I think in 78, to uh, Pittsburgh, which of course today um, has a borderline hip reputation, apparently terrific food, some questionable (laughs) urologists. Um, Shout out Dr. Davies. Um, But uh, I'm sure it it had a different reputation back back then. Um, uh, What was it like growing up there in in that time? And what was it like for you in particular? Uh, What I remember is just so much warmth uh, in terms of being embraced by the community as well as uh, my peers. I mean, I started in fifth grade at SP Elementary School. The two uh, uh, friends that I made really from the very beginning, Mark Dosh and John Pazin, are remain my best friends today. In fact, just two weeks ago, we vacationed a week in Myrtle Beach with the three families. Um, and I think it just it just speaks to, I think, uh, in my mind, uh, the beauty of America, uh, you know, I think, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of controversy right now about immigration, but my experience coming here uh, was really quite different. Well, it's poignant to hear you talk about how hard it was to be separated from your family at a time when we know that's in the news quite a lot. Um, what was the biggest shock to you in coming to the U.S.? What was the biggest, like, amazing shock, positive or negative? Uh, well, a funny story. The first, <laughs> the first thing I remember, to be honest, was I landed in JFK. Um, my father had flown uh, from Pittsburgh to come pick up my brother and I. And my first memory of the United States are McDonald's French fries. <laughs> <laughs> I think Gladwell is with you on that. He had a whole show about the uh, the original McDonald's French fries. Well, so, 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 so I had these fries. I think they cost like a dollar. And I was like, these things taste amazing. <laughs> and then I said to my dad, I said to my dad, can I have another? And he said, no, uh, we can't afford another one. Wow. Oh, my God. Uh, so that, that actually also also stuck with me in terms of, you know, just uh, how remarkable in the last 40 years things have changed. So the French fries were better than the running toilets uh, in the house. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I guess in hearing that story, the amazing thing is you didn't decide to go into interventional cardiology. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could now see why McDonald's is probably the best export to the U.S., uh, you know, to a lot of countries. Right, right, such deliciousness. So you had a group uh, called the 800 Club when you were a kid. What was that about? Well, I mean, it was it was a bunch of kind of nerdy kids who hung around. Yo, yo, got, oh, own it, sake, own it. Come <laughs> no, on. It was, 
<laughs> bunch of nerdy kids who, you know, excelled in school. And uh, we were, you know, uh, called the 800 Club, I guess, after the old SATs, uh, where there were two sections and each section was the maximum was 800. Uh, but quite proud of that group. Uh, <laughs> of the 10 of us uh, who hung out, Eight are physicians. Wow. And actually seven are back in Pittsburgh practicing. I'm the only one who who basically Flew the coop. Left, left, left the mold. Just proving that good is the enemy of perfection, I guess. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you always knew you wanted to do medicine. Um, I know you said you had a, a family history of, of heart disease, which we're going to get to in, in more detail in a moment. Um, uh, you went to UPenn Wharton undergrad and uh, spent your first summer working on Wall Street, as one does when at Wharton. Uh, how was that summer experience for your sake? It was a terrific experience. I learned a lot about uh, what it would be, uh, what what life as an investment person would be like. I actually worked for the Prudential Investment Corporation, lived in Brooklyn and Park Slope when it was, you know, not as hip as it is now, um, and did the reverse commute, actually, the path train out to uh, New Jersey, where where Prudential Investment Corporation was. And, uh, you know, again, I learned a lot about, 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 about the investment world. Uh, but at the end of it, I realized what it's like to work in a business where there's actually no hearts involved at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, they were investing life insurance money and trying to, you know, keep it going so that they could do the payouts. Uh, but uh, but I, I learned for myself that basically that is not what I wanted to pursue in terms of uh, a future career. So it was a very valuable experience. And then um, you decided to uh, major in history. How did you come to that? Because I, I didn't actually even realize you majored in history until we, we initially talked. How, what were you thinking around that? And you got to explain what part of history you liked the most, because that's a broad topic. Yeah, yeah. So I, I enjoyed writing. Um, I actually, my most influential um, teacher in high school was was a history teacher in 11th grade, uh, who uh, was really quite a remarkable uh, educator. Uh, and so uh, I was in the first year, you know, kind of looking around for different majors and realized that I would take the uh, pre-med requirements, uh, but just wanted to have a broader liberal education and uh, settled on, on history after a couple of, uh, couple of uh, courses that really um, uh, moved me. One of them was the, the uh, course on the Chinese Cultural Revolution, uh, from different perspectives. Um, and so I ended up majoring. So back then at Penn, um, there were, there's American history track, there's a European history track, and then, uh, the rest of the world as a non-Western history, they called it. Lot <laughs> 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 less TC back then. So I think, uh, so I, I was a non-Western track, um, and uh, did the courses in Chinese history and others, but focused mostly on South Asian history. Huh. So um, you graduated. You went to a med school um, uh, at Harvard, which you said um, recently on Twitter how much you loved, and then medicine and cardiology at MGH, as we mentioned, eventually joining the faculty. Now, um, I wanted to get into a little bit about the genetics of heart disease. I know that um, the area of cardiology that always interested you was heart disease. And growing up, it sounds like you were aware of a history of heart disease in your family. Yeah, my my grandmother um, in India had passed away at a young age of of a heart attack. Uh, my my uncle, my father's brother, older brother, passed away at the age of forty two of a heart attack. Um, and uh, my father had suffered an MI at the age of uh, fifty four. So. So a strong, um, uh, almost almost Mendelian kind of transmission of heart disease in our family, uh, and so that had really always uh, been 
a, a focal point in terms of thinking through a very simple question. You know, why is it that some people develop heart attack at a young age? And so how did you get into it? Who did you start working with? What was your actual path to, you know, at the time you were doing this, there was a lot of work that was going on. There were some epidemiological studies. There were some real genetics that were really getting going um, in Boston. What was your route into this? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, so it was 1997. I came in as an intern, uh, first year of clinical training at Mass General, and had a very influential mentor. His name is Chris O'Donnell, who at that time was starting a collection of patients uh, at MGH who had had a heart attack at a young age um, with the explicit goal of kind of understanding the inherited basis for this uh, common complex disorder. And, um, and you know, as you know, the previous 20 years, there have been a lot of progress um, in the genetic basis of Mendelian diseases, so single gene disorders. But when, when we entered in 97, there was very little known about the genetics of, of common complex diseases or the interplay of both genetics and environment. So I got my start basically recruiting patients at MGH in 1997 with early heart attack. And over the subsequent several years of my clinical training, we recruited about uh, 500 patients with heart attack at a young age. And believe it or not, those 500 patients have been the foundation for most of my research uh, over the last 20 years. So I'm not going to ask you if you recruited them standing outside the McDonald's while they were holding french fries, but I am going to ask you, <laughs> was was it, was this, you know, I, I, they say about psychologists, a lot of times people go into that field to, to work through their own issues. Was this for you sort of a way to work through your, you know, your grief or your, your fear about, you know, your family's medical experience? Was this a way to help prevent yourself from going through this too? Or was this something more academic? Um, that's a good question. I mean, probably not consciously kind of think, you know, in that way, but maybe uh, underneath it, this was a way. Um, but I, I, I entertained other fields as well. I was interested in endocrinology. I was interested in actually surgery as well. And I think all, what ultimately attracted me to cardiology and specifically cardiovascular genetics is um, the fact that for cardiology, you know, for a lot of important uh, diseases, but for each disease, you have lots of options for making diagnoses, but also treatment. So that's kind of what attracted me to cardiovascular disease. And then... Versus, say, neurology, right? Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly, where, where you can make uh, great diagnoses, but often not paired with treatment. Uh, and, then, and then on the genetic side, yes, there was also just huge unknown. Uh, it was actually in the early 50s, 1951, where a cardiologist from Mass General Hospital named Paul Dudley White was the first to describe the role of family history in, um, in conferring risk for heart attack. Um, and so MGH has a long tradition, essentially. And so I, th I think of our work as essentially building on uh, Paul Dudley White's legacy and essentially trying to answer what is, at the nucleotide level, at the, at the base level, the, uh, the, 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 the role uh, in explaining family history. So we're going to get to that in just a moment, um, but I wanted to just to take a minute to talk in a little bit more depth about something that I know you and I have talked about, um, that, you know, to follow up on Lisa's point, understanding and identifying patients at risk for heart disease was always on your mind, but um, I know that it, um, and your view of a lot of this, took on a whole new meeting in 2012 uh, in, in a really tragic fashion. You told me that you were several years into your faculty role uh, attending a hospital event when your phone rang. Do you want to pick it up from there? Yeah, it was an evening in September of 2012. We're actually coming up on the sixth anniversary of this. And um, I got a call from my parents saying uh, that your brother had collapsed at home and was taken to a hospital. And, 
And so I, I uh, you know, immediately uh, uh, figured out a way to get get to Pittsburgh. But in the interim, um, you know, I called the hospital ER and talked to the physician there. And it turned out that, you know, he had gone for a run, um, was uh, was sweaty, um, and then uh, felt quite unwell after a shower. And uh, had a 911 call. They came into the house. Um, and uh, he basically uh, collapsed in front of them. Uh, there was a prolonged resuscitation, um, and then he ended up um, making it to the hospital and got treated for the for the um, the blockage, uh, but had suffered a fair amount of anoxic brain injury and, and died ten days into the hospital course. Um, you know, leaving behind my uh, my, uh, my my niece and. Uh, my sister-in-law, and so uh, yeah, so I think that that whole uh, you know really terrible experience has um, you know further motivated, uh, I guess, my search um, for uh, ways to prevent uh, this thing from happening. Uh, and it turns out, for our family, there is actually a, a genomic cause, um, and believe it or not, uh, believe it or not, it's actually not yet published. Uh, we just have discovered this in the last. A few months uh, and uh, working on trying to uh, trying to uh, so there's 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 really this kind of crazy connection between uh, what I've gone through at a personal level uh, and also our research uh, efforts. It strikes me that you know as we all hear about these consumer genetic tests and and stuff that there really aren't cardiovascular tests that people are getting on a regular basis. Well, there might be because of yeah. some stuff. Where you all see that um, say because. Um, this is this is um, there are two aspects of his of his um, of Sake's work which we can talk about that um okay. yeah 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 let's go there then yeah yeah he's easy um so but I want I'm sitting here thinking man I want to go to the doctor and find out if I'm gonna right 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 if, if, about <laughs> risk well no I mean so Sake is leading I mean so this is, I think this is so relevant so um and we're gonna get to Lisa's question and I'm gonna I'm gonna we're, we're gonna sort of string it along here for a second Lisa so oh, I'll leave man. you man um because so. In terms of understanding the, um, you know, pursuing the genetics of heart disease, um, uh, for for all of these motivations, um, I th- I think Sake is probably known for you know several interrelated um, contributions and and advances in the thinking, and there are two related aspects that stand out Sake, and um, I want to talk about the first one first. The first is your mental model of the d- of disease. Many saw um, genetics as an opportunity to disease to understand disease with greater molecular precision, with the idea that many for many conditions like diabetes. Once you start looking at them, there'll be these really discrete subtypes, which we'll be able to define and understand. And you call this the fruit salad model of disease, you know, with discrete subtypes. And you know, you're, you're a lemon, you're a, I guess not, you know, you're 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 a melon, you're a whatever. Um, but you've argued in a really compelling fashion that often it makes more sense to think about complex disease more like a smoothie. Could you um, tell everybody what you mean by that? Yeah, that's a great question, Dave. And I think this has really come out of the last uh, 10, 15 years of research into complex diseases like diabetes and, and heart attack, where I think 20 years ago, there was this conception, as you said, that these complex diseases would resolve into discrete subtypes with each subtype having a molecular driver. And only if we could basically un- uncover those molecular drivers. And so essentially this fruit salad model that you could pick out the blueberries, you could pick out the strawberries um, based on molecular information. Uh, but it turns out that is basically not the case for diseases like diabetes or um, or heart attack. Rather, what it is is that in any given person, 
um, there's a, a blend, a quantitative blend, essentially a smoothie uh, in terms of risk pathways. Uh, there are discrete risk pathways, okay? So like LDL and blood pressure and uh, inflammation. Uh, but in any given person, it's a quantitative blend of those pathways with some um, uh, some people being a bit more banana and some people being a bit more strawberry. And uh, and we our goal is really to understand in any given person what that blend is, but also probably more importantly, figure out what these uh, fruits really are, what these causal pathways are, because if you can figure out the causal pathways, then typically intervening on those pathways will have impact on really everybody just to varying degrees. So in the end, though, how much how much of the I mean, so what you, I think what I hear you saying is there's all these different, you know, medical causes of these problems and they mix and match and they compound each other and all of that. Exactly. But in the end, so much of this is also related to behavior. Absolutely. You know, can you separate out what bit is behavior, what's environment, and what's genetic? Absolutely. So for coronary heart disease, uh, there is a lot that's that's behavior. You know, getting back to the French fries that I mentioned at the very beginning, and so so <laughs> right. it turns out that there, that is a very important role in the disease. And but typically, even the lifestyle stuff ends up working through one of these causal paths. You know? So in other words, that T-shirt I have that says eat right, exercise, die anyway is, you know, I should keep wearing it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 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 And, you know, and when we talk a little bit more about the research, I can, you know, we have some evidence, for example, for, for people at high genetic risk based on this, this polygenic model that we've developed. Right. Um, yeah, we're about to get lifestyle, to that. Yeah. lifestyle will have a very important role in modifying that risk. So you're not destined to have the problem. Um, that's the really important thing about these complex diseases like heart attack or, or, or type 2 diabetes where, you know, DNA is not destiny. It's basically very modified. The risk is very modifiable based on lifestyle, lifestyle interventions. So I want to get to that, um, but I want to make sure we have a chance to talk about this polygenic concept first. And then, because um, it's, I mean, it's been... I mean, this has been crazy over the, uh, um, in the news and all of the and um, I think tech um, uh, someone someone called it like this polygenic thing, which we're about to talk about, like the most important breakthrough of the year or something like that. Really exciting stuff. So the basic idea here, sake, is that um, your work helps us understand the impact of multiple tiny genetic nudges, which you argue can collectively have as much or more impact as the sort of large single nudges we often think about with genetics. Can you amplify on this and tell us about your work developing this concept of the polygenic risk score and um, what it is and why it should or you think it should or whether it should matter to clinicians and, and patients? Yeah, no, it sounds great. So I think the, 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 the starting point is if you take uh, 100 people with heart attack at a young age, um, actually similar to my brother, and you ask, um, you look at their genome and you ask, in what proportion of them can you find a single gene mutation that is sufficient to lead to early heart attack? Um, and this is people having heart attacks in their 30s, 40s, 50s, okay? So it turns out the answer is only 2%. So the monogenic model, which is basically a single gene mutation leading to disease, is relevant for early heart attack in only about 2% of people. So that means what's going on in the remaining 
Certainly, as Lisa mentioned, lifestyle plays an important role, but there's a lot of the genetic component that was still unanswered when we started uh, 20 years ago. And now uh, the punchline is if you look at the polygenic model, which is the additive effect of many gene variants, we've been able to reduce that polygenic component to a single number for each person from the genome. And that number has certain statistical properties, basically very similar to like your LDL cholesterol number. And what I mean by that is it follows a bell-shaped distribution of the population. Some people are high, some people are low, most people are in the middle. And then if you happen to be very high in, the, in this polygenic risk number, you're at much higher risk for heart attack compared to everybody else. So what are people supposed to do with that information, though? You tell somebody genetically, you know, you're an eight on a 10 scale. Are they supposed to just like write a will? I mean, is there something they can yeah. do? That's a great because that's a great question. okay, yeah. Granted, their bad behavior may make it make them a ten, but an eight is bad, right? So, what are you supposed to do? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, I'm going to get to that in one second, and to put it in perspective as to why this, I think, this number is going to be important is that uh, getting back to those hundred people I mentioned with heart attack at a young age, if, if two are just due to uh, the monogenic model. It turns out, uh, we've shown recently, that at least 20 are due to being high on this polygenic number. And those 20 right now are not being recognized in clinical practice. They don't stand out on the usual things we measure, like LDL or blood pressure and so forth. So they're basically showing up only when they have their heart attack. So that brings up the question that Lisa asked, which is, okay, great, you have a number that can identify people who are at risk, and these people, the, these at-risk individuals are not being captured right now in clinical practice. You tell them they're high risk. What can you do about it? It's, it's much more useful if you have interventions to offer people who are at high risk. And so we've shown in the last couple of years that people at high polygenic risk, there are two things you can do to lower the risk. One is like... Wait, let me guess. Eat right and exercise. <laughs> definitely one. But but I think here, the re- the reason here is that you don't need a genetic test to tell people to eat right and exercise, but I think people who are at high genetic risk often have a fatal, fatalistic attitude, you know, toward that risk. As, as you mentioned earlier, Lisa, should they write a will? Well, this data clearly says, no, you have a lot of control. You can basically lower the risk by at least 50%, if not more, by essentially living a, a favorable lifestyle. The second thing I think it's important in terms of potential interventions is we've shown that people at high polygenic risk can have that risk reduced by taking a medication to, to lower cholesterol. Um, and even though these individuals that are high polygenic risk don't have particularly high LDL cholesterol, even then lowering the LDL even further from, let's say, the average of 130 or so to much lower will have an impact on risk. And this has been shown in a couple of studies now that we published. And this is statins, right? I mean, just so we're clear, this is like a generic medicine, yeah, blah, exactly. blah, blah, right? Yeah, and there's a lot of questions, young people, right? Who you know, should a person in their 30s or 40s take a statin? And, uh, you know, most won't want to, but I think if you're, if you carry, you know, if you're on the one end of the bell curve and are, are for this polygenic risk number, uh, you have risk equivalent to carrying a monogenic mutation. And so I think uh, patients and physicians should, should seriously consider uh, efforts to try to reduce that risk. So now today, most, most people don't get a genetic test when they're going to their doctor for a checkup. How are you going to turn this into something that's used in practice? That's a great question. So this is really what we're working on right now um, in, in terms of commercialization, or essentially, of this, of this score. 
Uh, I actually think in a few years, uh, well, my vision is that everybody will end up having this number uh, similar to the way we know our LDL cholesterol right now, because it basically has the same uh, properties and um, and basically, if you're high on this number, as I said, you, you have a markedly higher risk and you're not being identified right now. So how do we get to that, that place? Uh, well, a couple of things about this score. The score can be calculated from uh, just genotypes coming from a, a genotyping array of the sort that is currently being used by companies like 23andMe or MyHeritage or, or Ancestry. So you don't need whole genome sequence. So this is pretty inexpensive you know, 20, 30 bucks, actually, in terms of just the genotyping chip. Um, and, and then, on, so that's, that's point number one. Point number two is that the algorithm to calculate the score um, is basically just, lim- just, uh, just algebra. You take the number of variants and multiply by a weight for each variant. Uh, so relatively straightforward. There's some nuances, but it can be done. Uh, and then number three is, um, is that you can, with that same data, the genotyping data, you can simultaneously calculate the score not just for this disease, coronary disease, but for a range of other diseases as well. We've worked on four other diseases, breast cancer, uh, atrial fibrillation, and so forth, and, and published that recently. So a single chip can give you this information uh, for a number of diseases. So I envision in a few years we will actually have a report card where you can go to the doctor, you can get this test, and then we'll basically see that you're in the 99th percentile for heart attack, you're in the 50th for breast cancer, 75th for, for atrial fibrillation. And the research going forward is going to be to marry the, that risk to interventions that can reduce the risk. And that's, I think, where, where, the, where the future is. And for a coronary heart disease, I mentioned we've already done some of that work. But for many of the other diseases, that work still needs to be done. So it seems like one of the real challenges... Um in here, sake is the concept of having helping people get their head around a polygenic risk score, um, and it or the concept of polygenic risk. The idea is that okay, you have a bad gene, people can get that. You have a gene that predisposes you to something, people can sort of can sort of get that. But then all of a sudden, it's not just two genes, five genes, ten genes, so many. It's like a, it's it's it, it tends to overwhelm people. And I'm actually reminded of Imran Hack's work. Back when he was at council, where he was trying to say that, okay, you know, people will, um, okay, just to cut to the chase here, the issue is with is with reimbursement for this, is that, okay, will people pay for these kind of tests? Because he was saying when he was at council, uh, you know, this sort of uh, genetic testing company, people would, you know, pay for CF testing, but it turns out that the, that your risk from all these other things that they could identify was actually way higher, very similar to what you're describing, but it just was like overwhelming and messy for people, and they, and they wouldn't sort of, you know, it, payers weren't really psyched about that. Um, <laughs> here, it seems like what, you, what you've tried to do is to take a complex aspect of risk and sort of distill it to sort of a, a, a manageable score. And if what you're saying is right, if there is real interventions that are possible, shouldn't the ultimate thing be for payers to more or less reimburse, you know, 23andMe or that level of assessment? Because it sounds like if the data are credible, which I know there are some issues around, not your data, the the some of the patient use of sort of raw 23andMe uh, uh, data or, or other company data, shouldn't that be able to then, like from what you're saying, be directly used for prognostication, for, for, for health prognostication, right? Yeah, I mean, let's, let's separate out the, the reimbursement issue from the, 
the the you know will patients understand this or will there be just on doctors will there be a barrier you know in terms of risk communication? I actually think there's there's very uh, uh, I'm very optimistic that patients and physicians will understand this because it's a number. Uh, like you go to your doctor, you get an LDL number, right? If you told that your LDL is 170, you don't think to yourself, that's high. You don't think to yourself, I'm going to have a heart attack, right, right away. Um, you basically understand it's a number that puts you at risk for a heart attack. And same thing here, it, you know, this is a number. And w- doctors are very used to dealing with numbers and basically and told being told that this number is high and here's what you can do about it because it's high. Um, and same thing with patients. Um like, for example, if you order a potassium test, I have no idea how the, the test is actually done. All I know, you know, at the end of the day is it's 4.0, and that's normal. So I think that same kind of strategy can be taken to this polygenic risk score, even though under the hood, you know, there are 6.6 million sites in the DNA sequence that go into calculating this risk number. The patient doesn't have to concern themselves with that at all. Yeah, I still, I think I come back to, you know, what what are people going to actually do? Are you going to be able, how do we get people then to respond in kind with taking medicines that they often just don't take or behaving in a way that would change the the, direc- the direction? I mean, I guess it's, a, it's a, such a complicated topic, I think, because even knowing the science is getting better on the other side of it, the, the, the sort of sociology side of it, the psychology side of it, we haven't seen much progress. Well, and I don't know what's worse is if um, uh, you, you're you sort of, let's say you get a, a high score on this polygenic thing and says, okay, you're super at risk and that should give you a higher sense of urgency and motivate you. But like, as you said, that only accounts for, and not only, it's a huge amount, 20%, but there's a whole, wouldn't a greater concern be that you take this test yet you, you hit it out of the ballpark, you have, is it, according to the polygenic score, you're at super low risk, but you're in that other 80% and you sort of- Go ahead, get the second French fry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you indulge yourself and you, you know, sort of with a false reassurance, the same way that people, do you worry about that? Uh, yeah, I think, I think but it's, you know, I do worry about it a little bit, but it's, you know, it's all about communication. I think patients understand inherently that, you know, one's risk for heart attack doesn't come from a single thing. There's many different things. And here's just basically, it's just a fact of nature that, Essentially, much of the inherent component can be distilled to a single number now, and then that number is part of you know will end up being part of risk assessment. And I think you asked very good questions about you know will it motivate patients to change behavior? Will it improve adherence to medications? Uh, and those are I think very important things to kind of work on as we go forward. And then I guess you should probably just emphasize also. I thought it was pretty. Uh, uh... Uh, good what the Broad did here, where didn't you guys make it available um, sort of to anybody um, just sort of uh, um, for free? Wasn't wasn't that my understanding? Yeah, the the the, the, the algorithm um, and all the weights and so forth is all publicly available, and it's just it's just been posted with the publication. Yeah, I thought that was terrific. Where would um, people find that if they were looking for it? How would you find that? There's a website called the Broad Cardiovascular Disease Initiative, um, Broad CVDI. So if you just Google Broad, uh, B-R-O-A-D, Cardiovascular Disease Initiative. And we'll include a link to that sake on our show yeah, notes. Yeah, that'll, that'll basically take you right to uh, the place where these can be, this can be That's downloaded. That's great. Thank you. That's right. Well, this is a great, I, I, so much terrific stuff, Sake. I, I, I knew it was going to be challenging to cover it, despite trying to bl- blast through it. You've just done so much, have accomplished so much, have advanced the field so much, and um, we're so grateful 
that you um, take uh, took a few minutes out of your day to uh, help explain it to our uh, to our listeners. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm particularly interested in this because I think cardiovascular disease is still the largest killer of people by a long shot, and yet so much money and effort and research focus and all that has gone away from cardiology towards other things. And I'm just I'm gl- grateful that people like you are still working on it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, I think I think there's a lot of possibilities here in terms of. Um, you know opportunities, I guess, that are that are exposed by uh, this this new new number, this new polygenic risk number, and I I look forward to kind of uh, addressing many of the questions that you guys have raised uh, in the next few years regarding getting this out to patients and using this information to help prevent cardiac care. Terrific, sake. Thank you so much for joining us Thank today. You. My pleasure. Thanks. All right, well, that was quite the show. So much great stuff, Lisa, don't you think? It is. I, I, you know, my mind is kind of swirling because I feel like, you know, I've had this conversation about things other than cardiology. Like you find out, you get a test, you find out whatever you find out that you have high risk for something. And then the hard part begins, right? Because we already know that most people don't take care of themselves very well, even when faced with clear evidence that by taking the drug they've been, they've been prescribed, they will survive longer, things like that. So I, it's just so fraught and uh, you know on the one hand i feel like rushing out and finding out my score and on the other hand i feel like going to mcdonald's getting some french fries <laughs> well you know it's funny because I, I actually wrote about this that even for so this is like a really validated genetic test but even for ones that aren't there's they can have if you believe in an explanatory model um then you, there's a huge placebo effect that people get from from any type of testing that aligns with their explore, right, right. you know explanatory model on the one hand and on the other hand i think of an example of from the uh, nih director actually who is saying oh genome sequencing changed his life, you know, made him eat more carefully because he showed me he was at high risk for diabetes. But in theory, that's so, it's striking, right? Because you should be eating carefully and exercising right anyway. And, exercise, and whether that, whether his sequencing, I mean, this was not sequencing, to be clear, this was a raise. Right. But um, in that case, he was talking about sequencing, you know, that that should, you know, make you, no matter what the result of that was, the output should still be, you know, eat more carefully and exercise. And you're right, that's Apparently, driving behavior change is pretty hard from what I understand. (laughs) All righty. Well, please remember um, to rate us on iTunes, leave a comment, help others discover the show. You can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow the inimitable Lisa Soonin at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, RockPoint. RockPoint, innovators in medical education and patient engagement. To learn more, go to www.rockpoint, with an E on the end, dot com. Remember, the last E is for excellence. All right, Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Enjoy your smoothies. Don't be the pineapple in the fruit salad. <laughs>